The following episode of Scream Queens is dedicated in loving memory to Carmel Quill and Lillian Fitzgerald and to the prolonged health and vitality of Honey Kelsch. This program is a proud member of Univaz. Unified. Unique. Voices. Learn more at univazpods.net. Hello, my name's Patrick, and I'm a Scream Queen. I'm a Scream Queen, and so are you! And my beautiful screamers, and welcome to another episode of Scream Queens. It's the podcast where horror gets gay. This is season 13, episode 12. And tonight, our Women in Horror Month celebration continues with a look at Iris K. Shim's film, Amma, starring Sandra Oh. And to get deep into the nitty gritty, I'm going to be joined by two very special guests, Aaron Quill and Rory Kelsch. But before we do any of that, please allow me to introduce myself. My name is Patrick Walsh, and ever since 2010, I've been your guide to the weird and wonderful world of horror movies. But you are going to have to see them through my very gay little eyes. Tee-hee, ta-ha, tralu, So hello, everyone. Welcome back. Wonderful to see you again. I hope you're doing fabulously. Oh, and if it's your first time here, may I just say, enjante. So, yes, February is Women in Horror Month, where we celebrate women in the horror genre, behind the camera, taking charge of living large. So the movie that we're talking about this week is Amma, written and directed by Iris K. Shin, Iris K. Shim, and starring the fabulous Sandra Oh. Some things you should know before we dive into the session with my guests. First of all, if you haven't seen the movie, it is streaming on Netflix right now. And the way this upcoming discussion went, we don't really get into the nitty gritty of the plot. We're not going to walk you through the story like I often do. So I would recommend watching the movie before you continue. If you choose not to, in a nutshell, what happens is that Sandra Oh is a mom living with her daughter on an isolated farm, which she is self-isolated. She's cut off the whole world because of this trauma that she experienced with her late abusive mother. And she's done all this to protect herself and protect her daughter. But everything gets all upset when a suitcase arrives with the remains of her mother, her ama, for which she is responsible to perform a proper burial ceremony. The longer she goes without getting the respect that she deserves, a proper burial ceremony, the angrier she will become and every day... Her rage will be like poison in your blood. Do the right thing. You know what she was like. Sandra O chooses to just ignore the whole situation. Just lock everything in the basement. And what her uncle said is starts coming true. The longer this goes on, the angrier Amra gets. And Sandra O's worst fear starts coming true. She's turning into her mother because she's being possessed by the ghost of her mother. Things you should know before going in. This is not an in-your-face, nightmare-inducing horror movie. This is all about small scares, intimate scares. Amma is not some unstoppable force that's going to wreak havoc on the entire world. She's just going to ruin your life and the life of your those around you. There's nothing particularly showy about this movie. There's no huge special effects. There's no big climactic battle. It's not about that. Because what it's about is the performances in this. The whole cast is wonderful here, top to bottom. Sandra Oh, Fievel Stewart as Chrissy the Daughter, Jeremy Mulrudy of Dea Rush, Mahwa Alana Lee as Amma. Nobody's cracked to horror movie 11 here. Instead, they're 
giving these real performances with connections that are believable and honest in a way that you don't normally get in horror because normally you have to go into the ridiculous where we don't go here. But you know what? I've babbled long enough. It is time for me to bring on Rory and bring on Aaron. And But first, you're going to have to sit back, relax, and listen to the trailer for Ava. Mom, what is this? We need more colonies. But that's a lot more work. But it's nothing the two of us can't handle together. Your life is so retro. Do you even have a phone? No. So how do you talk to your friends? My mom is my friend. Stop. Turn it off! Who are you? No! Get out of my house. What's in the suitcase? What's going on? I'm fine. I'm just worried about you. I said I'm fine. Who is this woman? That's my mama. That was all she had. I remember so much. Screaming. I didn't want you to know her. Why? Some Koreans believe that life's hardships are caused by the tormented spirits of their ancestors. Amanda, you okay? I think there's something wrong. Is this what you want? A final resting place? a wonderful TED Talk that you can watch on YouTube. Not now. Not now. We're doing a show right now, but I'll put a link in the show notes. But it's by a guy named Dr. Steven Schlossman called What Horror Movies Can Teach Us About Ourselves and Being Human. And he talks about how horror lends itself naturally to being this perfect vehicle for introducing complex societal issues in an easy-to-digest form. What does that mean? Okay, for instance, if I asked you to watch a movie about the uneven distribution of justice in Old Testament law and its effect on current society, that's probably not going to pique your interest, right? But if I asked you to watch A Nightmare on Elm Street, ooh, that's a different story. You'll be jumping at the bit if you had to choose between the two. But it's a trick question because both of those movies are the same movie. They're both A Nightmare on Elm Street because at its core – A Nightmare on Elm Street is about the failure of the judicial system. It's about mob justice and the inherent cruelty of the biblical adage, the sins of the fathers shall be visited upon the sons. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children of those who hate me for the sins of the parents. Exodus chapter 20, verse 5. The kids on Elm Street, they didn't do anything to Freddy Krueger. Their parents did, but they're being punished for it. 
Now, similarly, if I asked you, hey, do you want to watch a movie about how thousands of years of the subjugation of women in traditional Korean culture still affects modern Korean Americans today? Or do you want to watch Sandra Oh get possessed by the ghost of a really pissed off mom? You're probably going to pick the second one, right? Well, surprise, that's also a trick question because both of these movies are Amma. Written and directed by Iris K. Shin. Now, in order to get to the nitty-gritty behind Amma, I thought it was important to find guests who were a little outside the usual Scream Queen's wheelhouse. Because neither of the two women here tonight are horror fans. At all. Dun, dun, dun. No, 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 don't panic. Do not panic. Sit down. Because even though they don't like horror movies, both of them are insanely talented, whip-smart, wickedly funny women who are not afraid to call bullshit when they see it. And plus, I've been friends with them for more than, well, more decades than I care to count. Such a mitzvah. My first guest is a published writer and storyteller who, to this day, is still one of the most effortlessly gifted character actors I have ever encountered, as well as one of the wisest people I have ever known. Ladies and gentlemen, Boys and girls, MIGNCs, wherever you may be, please welcome to the Scream Queen's microphone for the first time, the fabulous Rory Cash. Oh my goodness. Hi. Hi, Scream Queen's fans. Hi. Hi, Patrick. It's been, Hi, Rory. It's been so long. I've missed you so. Crazy. So have I. I've missed you as well. We had a thing, didn't we? We, we were the darlings. The darlings of the Foy Theater, weren't we? <laughs> <laughs> we were. We were. We were the big fish <laughs> in the small ocean of Siena College Theater. That's right. Now, hold on, hold on, hold on just a second, because I still got one more guest waiting in the wind. She is an accomplished actor, singer, and okay, I may have done Church Basement Summer Theater with her in the way back when, but she has made it all the way to Broadway as Christmas Eve in Avenue Q. She's a screenwriter who co-wrote and starred in the Mikado Project, and she's one of the most outspoken and, well, relentless activists that I know. And that's a compliment. Because she's speaking out against discrimination in all its forms. Anti-Asian discrimination, anti-Semitism, homophobia, transphobia, discrimination against people of color, both in the entertainment industry and the world beyond. If there is a fight going down, you definitely want her in your corner. Plus, she's also a real-life fairy princess. Anyway, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and my GNCs, wherever you may be, may I introduce to you the divine Erin Quill. That's the fairy princess right there. The fairy princess. It is the fairy princess. I write, I write, for those of you who don't know, I write the blog, The Fairy Princess Diaries, which is, again, for diversity and inclusion. But also, I'm here because I'm Asian. And I said that before, and Patrick laughed, but Patrick, you want to get into it? <laughs> well, yes, you are here because you're Asian, but also I know that you're the voice of diversity about Asian. And this movie's not just about being Asian, it's about women, and it's got so much more to say about that. It was your it was your doorway in. Take it. <laughs> it was my gateway. This is the drug. show. It's showbiz, honey. Whatever gets your foot in the door. Your foot's in the door. No, don't don't gate, slam it's it now. My gateway drug. Um, it is my gateway drug. Even though it's Korean Asian and that you're Chinese Asian or half Chinese, and you're she's half Chinese, half Irish. Yes, so but I'm married to a Korean, so it all fits. And I know Sandra, so oh, like, okay, yeah. we're good. I've spent actually a, quite a lot of time with the Koreans and Korean Americans, so we're good. If there's a cause, if somebody's underrepresented, if somebody's being mistreated in the industry, Aaron is out there speaking out, proud about it, and I've always admired Wonderful. that about you. I thought you're fearless Wonderful. that way. 
I am fearless that way. You know what? You do have a, but if you're going to do it for boys and girls out there, uh, just remember the repercussion is you might not work as much as you did before you said a lot of shit Mm -hmm. about people. Anyway, I mean, truth, they're truth, but you know, anyway, it's fine. Everything's fine. Everything's fine. And of course, one of the reasons that one of the reasons that you're both is that you're both moms, which is something that I don't have. I'm a cat dad. That's not the same. No, but it's, no, it's not the same. I realized as I was about to introduce Aaron that you two have something in common that I did not realize that you had. I did Godspell with both of you. Oh yes, that's right. Oh my god. <laughs> oh my god. Where did you guys do it? We did it right after high school mm. in a local church production i did joanne and patrick what did you would you you weren't wearing this i that was all good gifts all good gifts right all right, good right. Gifts, yeah i remember the we costumes. had a cast of three hundred thousand people oh my god <laughs> we had like the five five people who could sing and then everybody else whose parents didn't want them around for the summer in their hair and like that was and that was the makeup so like Oh my yeah. God, a cast of hundreds, 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 hundreds. But we had a good time. Oh, oh, that's great. Oh, well, you know, Patrick was our Jesus. <laughs> I'm sure he likes to think that. Glenn, white guy, check. <laughs> I was a career Jesus for a while there, but nobody cares. Nobody cares. Okay, the movie that we are here to talk about today is Uma, directed by Iris K. Shim. Mm-hmm. All right. Okay. Aaron, since I just saw you a few months ago, I'm going to dump this one on Rory. Rory, we have a little tradition here at Scream Queens. Picture that I'm a movie producer. We're locked in the elevator for 30 seconds. You got 30 seconds to pitch me the the plot of Amma and sell me on it. The clock starts now. No pressure. Oh, okay. Uh, So a mother and daughter, they keep bees. Uh, There's uh, the mother. There's something wrong with the mother. We're not not sure what it is yet. Um, There's uh, she has a thing with electricity. Um, She's afraid of it. She thinks it's going to make her sick. There's something. Uh, going on with that, I not I don't quite get the bees yet, but uh, oh, her mother, her mother dies. <laughs> okay, her mother dies, and and is sort of haunting her, and they have to do this ceremony um, in order for the spirit to pass on. And time is up. Well done. Well done. Well done. Well done. Really? Okay, great. Roy, Roy, nobody does it well. That's kind of how I do it. Erin, is there anything that you want to add to that thirty seconds? Oh yeah, I just say. <laughs> Korean moms are crazy. Korean American moms only slightly less crazy. I have a Korean American, I have a Korean mother-in-law, so I'm gonna, you know. But it's kind of like uh, I would just say Asian moms go crazy even from beyond the grave. That's my elevator pitch. That's yeah, done. Yeah. Well done. Okay, sure. And sold. Run that thing yeah, exactly. Up. Well done. Personally, I would have gone with Sandra Oh lives on an isolated farm with her teenage daughter. Her life has started to turmoil when the ashes of her abusive mother arrive for her to deal with. Is Sandra being possessed by the ghost of her ama? Or is the cycle of abuse just repeating itself? Either way, attention must be paid in ama. $10 million! Okay, one of the reasons that I wanted to cover this movie from the moment I saw it was, first of all, the gatekeepers were out for this in droves. The horror gatekeepers. It's not a horror movie, which I find they tend to come out particularly hard whenever there's a woman in the driver's seat. I was bored for most of the movie the first time through up until the end when I said, oh, this is interesting because I've noticed this trend now. And Uma was the one. This movie was the first movie that I noticed it in that when women are in the driver's seat, they're coming up with ways to resolve horror movie situations without a full cast bloodbath. Yeah, I think that's I think that has a lot to do with like what is terrifying to women 
we deal with blood every month. So I don't think blood is something that we find very mm. frightening. It's just more like, oh, shit, here it comes again. Whereas like true horror, I think, is mental and physical torture. You know, I feel that that's more kind of in keeping with our horror traditions. Like, I don't think Friday the 13th is scary. Like, I don't think any of those, you know, like we used to go to Nightmare on Elm Street movies and laugh. Because it was so ridiculous. It mm. didn't it didn't bother me. I was just like, ah, it's a bloodbath, whatever. It's such a male way to deal with horror. You know, like men are terrified of blood, right? And I think in part because men are terrified of women, straight men anyway, are terrified of women. We bleed every month. We could make them a dad with no warning. You know, there's a lot of repercussions with blood and women and straight men. Blood in female-driven horror vehicles are, is not usually the answer to me. I mean, I don't know. Huh. No, no, no. I like that. I like that. That's that's a that's a side I never thought of before. That's cool. I'm actually obsessing over what you said about blood and gore being such a male way of dealing with fear because it is such a male impulse that when faced with a problem, solve in the quickest way possible. And when you put that in a horror movie, it's kill it. Whatever it is, kill it. Worry about the consequences of doing that later. Just kill it and may get everyone on my team killed. But as long as I'm standing tall at the end and I am the sole survivor, I am the hero, kill it. But now I'm seeing female filmmakers coming in saying, hold your horses there, tiger. There may actually be ways to solve this problem where everything can go back to normal and nobody dies. Can we stop and think about that for a minute? And I find that fascinating. When I revisited the movie after it came out on Netflix, I'd watch it from that different angle. I said, okay, let's not look at this like it's your standard horror movie. There's so much going on with small scares and real life scares and real life situations that you don't normally see. And I find it all fascinating. So that's why I picked it. It's why it's been sitting in my queue forever. Yeah. Uh, part of the reason I think the gatekeepers were out and drove with this because it was produced by Sam Raimi's production company. And Sam Raimi, of course, did Spider-Man and then, you know, uh, uh, Xena Warrior Princess. Yeah, he does. He does an amazing he does amazing jobs with horror and fantasy. But yeah, well, that's where he came from. Yeah. He, yeah, but he's 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 more he's more. Uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Mainstream now. But he started with doing the Evil Dead, which was the the underground gore fest movie that put him on the map and what he's known for. So people were like, oh, it's going to be that. And it's distinctly not that. No, I think this movie is a lot smarter than that. And I think that one of the things that they touch on, but they don't push too hard. And I think that's another female trait with horror movies is that the mother's actual biggest fear is her child leaving her. That's her yes. horror, right? So as a mother, um, she's, she's suffering from generational trauma because her mother had generational trauma. And in a way, this is very uniquely Korean. It's a uniquely Korean story. And here's why. Here's history in like 30 seconds or less. So when Japan started invading Korea, they took, it's an estimated 80,000 women to be sex slaves. And uh, most Americans don't know about this. They were called by the Japanese army, the comfort women. Uh, now, revisionists have called them sex slaves. And Japan still, in many cases, denies it. Although a couple of years ago, somebody in Japan acknowledged that that's actually what happened because a historian was allowed to go through files that had never before been opened to him. And he just kind of like wandered in and he was like, I'm going to keep these. And there's tons of videos on YouTube if you want to dispute it or talk about it or learn more about it. But from Korea specifically, they took the most women. 
So they took 80,000 women, let's say, and only 30,000 returned. The others were killed. Now, the women that were returned had been raped multiple times a day for years at a time. And if they hadn't been, um, what do you call it, sterilized, they had terrible, terrible sexual trauma and problems, right? And and this is all documented stuff, by the way. Mm-hmm. And then they went home and they weren't allowed to talk about what had happened to them because it would disgrace their family. Uh, Asian mm-hmm. families are very, very particular about sexual abuse, about intimacy of any kind. You know, everything is uh, couched in food. Like, are you hungry? That's how your mother says, I love you. So my personal mm-hmm. theory is that you know, sometimes the Koreans, the Koreans are known as kind of like the Irish of Asia, right? They party too hard. They like to get drunk and sing songs. They really like karaoke. They go big, they go loud. And I remember when I got married, um, that was one of, you know, my husband's family was Korean. My family was Irish and Chinese. And the way my Irish family kind of came to terms with it, um, because they were biggest, uh, is is them saying, well, you know, the the Koreans are the Irish of Asia. And I was like, uh-oh. Um, but I was like, oh, shit. why am, why am I only learning this now? What, what, what is happening? Oh no. Oh no. Now a warning. I'm like it's a little late, but, um, my personal theory on like why this is a specifically Korean American story is because yes, they couch the mother's kind of mental trauma in what, in uh, what is now being called fabong right? Which is a cultural syndrome specific to Korea and Korean immigrants. It's a unique diagnosis. And it's about, it's, it's a combination of like depression and alienation and the inability to talk about your feelings. But my personal theory is that only came about relatively recently in the last 25 to 30 years. And that's because those women that suffer that they were raised by comfort women survivors. They were raised by sexual trauma Mm. survivors who had no therapy and no outlet, right? So there's generational trauma in Korean and Korean American culture specifically that Americans do not talk about wow. because it is hideous. Wow. And so as soon as I saw, as soon as I watched, and I do know Sandra, and um, I was like, oh, damn, is she going to go there? Because like America really is not ready for the the actual horror of what, being descended from that kind of trauma can bring you. Um, I felt like, oh, this was like a little bit lighter than what, <laughs> how deep it could have gone. But you're right. It sets the framework of what's there, of why, Uma, who, whose name we never learned. Right. She's just Uma throughout the movie. Right. That Uma is unable to talk about these problems. She's not, She doesn't have the ability to speak. Right. She doesn't have the ability to address speak. this rage that she's and she doesn't have the ability to like address the fact that her husband, uh, she followed her husband here and then he left her. And that's another yeah. very culturally specific thing. You're not really supposed to talk back to men. And there's plenty of Korean American women out there who'll be like, what are they, what are you talking about? But like culturally, uh, throughout history, it is different in America now. And a lot of, um, that Fong Bum thing is, is visited upon, uh, Korean Americans who are trying to be American and then they get depressed because they can't speak to their family, to their male elders or something and like bridge these generational trauma subjects that are really quite, quite upsetting. So, you know, for me, 
anyway, that's, that's kind of what it was about. Like it was about generational trauma and it wasn't, and you know, Amma, the reason her name is Amma and we never learn her name is because in Korean culture, when you become a mother, you lose your first name. Your name becomes like, my son is named Liam. So now if we were in Korea, I would be called Liam's mom. Oh. I would no longer be Aaron. Wow. I would be Liam's mom. Wow. And even in in like his Taekwondo teacher is a very traditional Korean man. So he has never asked me my first name. He just always calls me Liam's mom, you know? So that's wow. why we don't know who Ama is. That's why it's like, there's a lot of cultural specificity in this. And that's because Iris and Sandra and all that. It, it, it's actually like very, a lot deeper than I thought they were going to go on that particular uh aspect of it but that's why Amma is only Amma no it's interesting I like I like that they have things in there that will resonate with the audience it's supposed to resonate with and the rest of us could learn about it from through conversations like yes, this absolutely so because I I did not know any about any of that you know while I can see compared to what from what you just told me not knowing that it's almost like well did they scratch the, they barely scratched the surface of that but when you know about it I mean it's clear it's it's clear that this is a psychological thriller trauma thing. You know, um, it made me think a little bit of Get Out, which I loved. I mean, I loved Get Out. That, like, that changed everything. Oh, yes. Thank you, Rory, for bringing up Get Out, because there is a fabulous documentary out now called Horror Noir, which is about the history of black horror. And in that, there's all these black film historians and black filmmakers and black actors talking about various movies, various experiences. And when they talked about Get Out, they said... There was stuff baked into that movie that was there specifically to terrify black audiences that would have no effect on other audiences. And I think there's something similar going on here with Amma and that the things Erin was talking about, this built-in culture of silence, uh, suffering in silence that's built into Korean culture amongst its women, a Korean audience member would recognize this immediately and it would resonate much deeper with them than it would for a non-Korean audience member. The filmmakers are giving you these little gifts that are just for you. It's not for all of you, just for you, which I find fascinating. Please continue. I really, I'm not a horror. I was the girl at Therese Esterhazy's house every year, just sweating my balls off, like under a, I mean, and because everyone, <laughs> we had to watch the slasher. And if I, and if I said anything, I, I would be like, I'd be like the biggest dork around. You know, I was just like, no, it's so great. Oh yeah, I love it. Love it, and I didn't sleep. I was terrible. I was just was awful. So, um, but I watched all of them. Happy birthday to me! I watched the crappy ones. I watched the good ones. Anyway, um, <laughs> so I'm really it not. It was the I'm time. The it was the time. You know, that was our. Yeah. That was what our our film library was. It was horror. I would just like to point out that I never did that to Rory. That was not me. No, was no, no, no. <laughs> surprisingly enough, it was surprisingly enough. I was, that was not me in college. So Why no. I adult thing. I mean, if I could, I, I could say no. Thanks, no, thanks, but no thanks. You enjoy, <laughs> you know. So yeah. The way I would have described the movie, like myself, like it, there's three worlds at war here. Uh-huh. There's the old world of Korea and Korean traditions. There's the American world that's waiting. And there's this world that Sandra Oh has built for herself. Can you please tell me about who's Amanda? Like what's this world that she has that she's in? Well, I'll tell you what was confusing for me. If I could just hop in that, that conversation. I mean, I understood that. I understand why the scene was there, but when, when she gets pissed off at uh, Dermot Mulroney for, you know, she thinks that he's, you know, giving um, Chris, the daughter's name is Chris. He thinks that he gave her the college application and she's, and she t- tells this whole story about, 
I always hated bees. I never in a million years thought I would be a beekeeper. I mean, I'm, I'm, an, I'm an accountant. What did I know about making honey? But more than that, I hated bees. I hated the sound they made. The constant buzzing that just crawls under your skin. But then one day, Chrissy came home with a book about beekeeping and became obsessed with the idea. She wanted to start a hive so badly. She even asked me to help her convince you. I was nervous at first, but... Chrissy... Fearless, surrounded by all those bees. And it made her so happy. And that made me happy. It made me feel like I was a good mother. So we kept adding more hives. It was something we were always supposed to do together. So I was really surprised when I found the college application that you gave her. Look, I, I gave her that application, but that's because she asked me for it. You probably think this is not any of my business, but don't you think going to college could be good for her? You know, make some friends, learn to live life on her own a little? I'm sorry. You didn't really expect she was going to stay here forever, did you? And but, you know, Chris, Chrissy came home from school with this thing and she just so wanted to, you know, um, to to keep bees. So I did it for her and I don't even like bees. And I know that there's probably a, a deeper point to that kind of. But I still don't understand. Like, I, I don't know if I understand the whole deal with the bees. Like, I, fair enough. I'm going to give you my take on that whole situation, but I'm going to go about it in a roundabout fashion. So bear with me. Specifically, this world that she's in, she has um, this uh, Amanda or, um, sorry. I have her other name. She has managed, because of the generational trauma, because of this stuff that her mother put her through on this farm in the middle of nowhere, she has isolated herself and her daughter completely. They are cut off from the rest of the world because of the uh, abuse that she suffered. Her mother used to torture her with with electrical wires, um, electrical shocks. So now she doesn't allow electricity on the property. She's made a false. She's made up a disease. No, no, I can't be allowed electricity. So you can't bring it on the property. It's she, she, she's not sick. She's just afraid of it. Um, and she's in the best of intentions doing the same thing to her daughter. What her mother did yeah, to her. Right. And. This is now it's being doubly threatened, like because her mother has passed away and this this man comes from Korea and just dumps everything, treats her like garbage, expects subservience from her immediately. Correct. That, and that is a lot of that is a lot of what Asian that's the diet. That's uh, kind of what happens when you're part of the diaspora. Right. So you're always at war with yourself. You have people coming from the point of origin and they're always telling you you're not enough. And then not only is she not enough as a Korean in his eyes, she has a daughter who is mixed race. I'm mixed race. And that was like super interesting to me because watching her daughter look at her really befuddled when she mentioned traditions or she didn't know what the what the hanbok was, which is the traditional Korean dress. They Men and women wear it. It's kind of like a robe. You know, in Japan, they would have the kimono. In China, they have the chungsam. In Korea, they have the hanbok. 
it it is kind of like to some of the benefit for mixed race people to not get too caught up in cultural specificity. And yet we get chastised all the time for not knowing certain things. So there's like just no winning. Like it, it, it always. Right. And, and that was another I was like, oh, see, because she tried to change the game from how she grew up. She created this happy family, happy parents in her life and they lived on this happy farm and they have bees but bees are generally happy and all that kind of stuff and then when the ashes come uh and the uncle comes and you see the contempt he has for her that she has failed as a daughter she has failed as a korean she has failed on so many levels as a mother because that your your daughter doesn't speak korean why doesn't she speak any korean why doesn't she speak any yeah. korean and, and and the subtext is of that is why doesn't she look Korean enough, right? That is something that like a lot of Asians have difficulty with is mixed race people. And the truth is the mixed race population in the United States is the fastest growing of Asian Americans. So even if you looked at me and you were like, ah, get away, which is like 90% of the Asians I know, um, not Sandra, Sandra's always been great, but um because that keep dropping that name, Aaron. I know, well, I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna do it. My we're the, we're the best of friends. We're like this. No, no it's fine. No, no, it's fine. No, it's fine. I'm jealous. I'm jealous. We exchange Christmas cards. <laughs> um, she's actually more friends with Chill. Um, but her having a mixed race daughter, it, specifically in this film, when she very easily could have had a Korean daughter, that's her also taking a step away and not being the perfect Korean or Korean American in this case, and. You know, of course, the uncle's going to use that to chastise her with because he is a hideous person. Let's face it; like he could have yeah, come to a, he could have come to America and rescued his sister. I mean, his sister was here with no husband, no way to support herself, and like shocking her daughter with electricity. And the and the uncle's like, "What doing? What in Korea? You know, he's not helping out." Yeah. But that's not his job as he lays out the rules. He's like, it's it's the it's the job of the child to take care of the parent in this world and the next. So there's that threatening her world. But then there's also, like you said, with the daughter, there's this other world that the the Dermot Mulrooney world that the the bees that they have. OK, first of all, bees, uh, matriarchal society. That's why I think right. they're there. Oh, well, queen okay. bee, right. Um, they follow the queen. queen bee. Oh. Right. Queen okay. bee. Yeah. Which is why they're attracted to Umma when she shows up. Like, oh, there's a new queen in town. Right. No. Exactly. But, well, um, yeah. but it's also this thing that's supposed to bring her and her daughter together. This thing that was just theirs. And she says, she says to Dump, 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 then that senior talk of it. She's like, this was something that we were always supposed to do together. This was supposed to keep the daughter here. It's like, she's yeah. always just thinking about what's going to keep us. This is just ours forever. But now it's been discovered by a, the honey's been discovered by an influencer online. And now all of a sudden there's a demand for it. So the outside world is calling. Right. <laughs> Remember how I've been trying to sell your honey online? Remember how I thought it was a waste of your time? Vividly. But maybe it wasn't such a waste of time after all. You barely keep up with orders. Keep selling out. But how? Apparently some lifestyle influencer posted about your honey and it kind of went viral. I don't know what any of that means. To be honest, Amanda, I don't think I do either. My niece tried to explain it to me, but... What I do know is I can sell every drop of this you make. And more. This thing that you built to, to keep this world safe forever and keep us keep money flowing in is now pulling my daughter away. And... And like I said, the daughter wants to go to college, but she's afraid mm -hmm. to bring it up. 
Right. Because she knows that mom's not going to like this because mom can't deal with this either world. Where did this come from? Chrissy. Yeah. I asked you a question. It was Danny. He gave it to me. Danny? Why? Because he's my friend. He's not your friend. I do his books. I pay him to help us. He's your friend too, Mom. He's our only friend. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you want to go to college? No. No? Right. And I also think that a lot of immigrant children or children of immigrants um, have this pressure put on them. Even if they are encouraged to go to college, they are often asked to go to like a local college and live at home and continue to help with the family business and continue to work in the shop. You know, we don't just see it in horror. If you looked at the project uh, Kim's Convenience, the daughter in that mm -hmm. is is trying to go to college desperately to become a, a photographer. She's funny. She's smart. She's so talented. And yet her parents are still making her like work in the shop. Right. Yeah. And like, I, I remember I was 12. I was, this is not a great story. I mean, it's fine. But when I was 12, I went over to Australia because my family emigrated to Australia. They're Chinese, but they emigrated to Australia. And my grandparents owned a Chinese restaurant, the fanciest one in town. And uh, they put me to work that summer working behind the bar. I was 12. And then, yeah. And I was yeah. behind the bar. But like, they were like, yeah, you're here. Go ahead. And my cousins, which was so odd, they lived there. And they're like, gee, that's funny. Grandma's never asked us to work behind the bar. And I was like, well, sh she knows I don't drink. Like, <laughs> I had three male cousins. They would have probably cleared that bar in one night. Oh, yeah, sure. Mm -hmm. Wise woman, wise woman. Yeah, yeah, she, was like, she was smarty. She was a smarty. But like, that's that's the societal pressure. And then that's and why then, it was the most successful restaurant, right? Because yeah, of right, decisions exactly. like that. I'm not, yeah. No shade, no shade. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. It, it really was. People still still talk about it on these like Facebook groups. They're still like, anybody remember the Lin Nam? So it, it, working in the family business and uh, Korean, actually Korean American business owners, independent business owners are the largest group of small business owners in the United States. And, the, you know, you have to get your workforce from somewhere, right? <laughs> what better mm -hmm. way than, than, your kids, than, yeah. than your kids? Yeah. And so they're going to work in your shop, your liquor store, your Unimart, whatever it is, because that's that's the tradition, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that I enjoyed watching on a rewatch when I said, okay, what read readjust your settings for what you're expecting from this movie. I like that for almost the whole movie up until the very, very end, this all could have been happening in her head. I thought it was. Well, I really did. I, I her episodes that she had, she would, I, I mean, I, I, I equated it to like sleepwalking, you know, where she would see, the ghost of Uma and then be out and it's Chris Waker. She would hear Chris screaming and then the daughter, Chris, and then, she, then there would be Uma out there. So I, yeah, I mean, I didn't, yeah, I got that. I, I wasn't sure a lot of times if she was just imagining the whole thing. There comes a point where you go, Oh no, this is, this is for real. It, it's after, it's after that the ashes get, um, right. It's after she spills the ashes and she disrespects when she disrespects the yeah. burial. She gives her a shitty burial. The one thing that she's supposed to do. Right. Right. Because yeah. Abba says at one point in one of her visitations, she's like, I couldn't live without you. And now I can't die without you either. Do yeah. the right thing. 
Yeah, there's a lot of familial uh, tropes that get passed down generation to generation. And it is very that, you know, as soon as she tipped over the ashes, I was like, here we go. I (laughs) I was like, and here we go, because it's just not going to not going to go well. Yeah. And it's after that, the Chris, the Chris starts seeing things. I'm going, okay, it's not just in her head anymore. Yeah. This is, this is happening. This is for this, this, this is a woman who is raging. And what I love, what I find fascinating about this too, what I find a lot happening with women in horror movies and just way I'm looking at older horror movies as well. It's like looking at the, uh, when you especially have a woman villain and going, why are they so angry? Just looking at Uma, this is a woman who just was promised everything. She had, she gave up everything. She was a respected dressmaker back in Korea. She right. they said she was she was fun. She was vibrant. She came to America and just now she's in the middle of fucking nowhere on this farm that she hates with a man who he's thriving. I'm not. I'm afraid to go outside. I can't learn the language. I'm having trouble. I'm miserable. I'm here all alone. He left me. And it's it's this rage that the world's not listening to her. I was promised something. I wasn't given to me. Nobody cares. Yeah. And the world doesn't the world doesn't like to listen to women. The world doesn't like to listen to older women. The world doesn't like to listen to older women who are not from wherever you're from. Right. It There's is so much of- rage there that's justifiable. And I'm I'm on a sub. I feel her rage. I feel it. I didn't want you to know her. My father said she was so radiant and so fun when they first got married in Korea. And then they came to America. The land of the, of the free. Land of opportunities. I think we were happy. He was completely enamored with this place. My mom. She struggled. Everything here felt foreign to her. She was scared all the time. She stopped leaving the house. She changed. I remember so much screaming. I think my dad couldn't take it anymore. And after he left, that was all she had. So I had to do it all. I had to take it all. All her rage. misogyny times three, right? It's compounded. Everything she feels is compounded because you look back and you see what she had to go through. You know, if she was a, a respected dressmaker, let's just go from the script. If she was a respected dressmaker in Korea, well, that was a solid living. That was a mm-hmm. solid living. Mm-hmm. So she would have had money. She would have had prestige. And the more beautiful dresses she made, the more higher class uh, customers she would have had, the more she could have charged. So there was no reason for her to leave Korea, except that she was doing what every Korean woman is told to do, which is be a good wife. Yeah. Yeah. And this is something that resonates for me, too, because 
I see a lot of Oma in my mom. My mom was very much a product of the 50s. Yeah. She was made to be a housewife. She wasn't educated. She mm-hmm. wasn't supposed to know things. Like she knew stuff, but she would never act like she knew stuff. She would play dumb. And sometimes she just was dumb. And she would always, like I could, when I was she like was, having she intimate- She dumb, Patrick. She was smart as a no. fox. She was, that's what I'm saying. She was, but she had to play this game, but she wasn't educated. That's why she didn't fit in at the Cherry Valley Country Club. She was new money. There was so many things Like she was on the ride with my dad, who was a successful businessman. He's jetting all around the country. He's going to all these places. He's an international golf tournament. She's always stuck at home with us. I was a late baby. She had me at 40. The other three happened in her 20s. Like she should be done with this by now. And here I am. And I get this. I get this. And this is, she drank too. Like my mother was an a secret mm-hmm. alcoholic. And I understand all of that now, but I didn't at the time. And one of the scenes that really resonates here with me, uh, there's a scene where um, Chrissy is sleeping and Sandra O oh goes up and talks, gives her the whole backstory that I just said, the whole fact where she explains what happened with her mom, that this is why she's angry. They, the world was did her wrong. Right. My mom used to do that when she was really drunk. She would come in and start apologizing for shit. And I would play play possum. Like uh-huh. I didn't know it was, it was one of the most terrifying things. One of the most terrifying oh. things was to walk into the house and realize mom wasn't there anymore. It was somebody it's her. Yeah. Right. And I saw so much of this movie. They were cause like Sandra O oh has this wonderful quality where she would be able to just like, she would be herself. And you see, I'm come in like, Oh, there she is. She's gone now. And it's just the slightest little changes in her eyes. I'm going, Oh God, you're terrifying. And I know that feeling right. Well, when you're staring that in the face, like that it was gut thing. Yeah. Yeah. I will yeah. say my mother was a very well-respected ballet dancer, a very mm. high level um, and traveled the world and did the whole glamour thing before she was married. So she had a lot of experience coming. From, and also she was Australian. So, you know, Australians have a certain kind of quality where they can talk to anybody and they can fit in with anybody. And she came over on a scholarship to study with Martha Graham and she had an accident while she was here. And that's why she kind of got stuck here. She had this accident. She had to stay longer so the doctors could treat her. She was out. She met my dad. They had like a whirlwind romance. And she they were married like three months later. And my dad was in politics. And he did he did very well, my dad. You know, we only lived a block over from Patrick. <laughs> so, okay. You know, yeah. yeah. We had equally, equally very nice houses. But I think that's why our mothers were friends because they both had that quality of this is not the be all end all. This is suburbia is not where we're supposed to be. Yeah, I was just going to say that too. My mom, my mom never fit in at the country club because she was not, she was not smart the way they were smart. She was not involved in their husband's careers the way she was. She was not, she didn't come from a fancy background. She was a girl from Brooklyn. And I think, like they, I know, I know from hearing conversations about people here, about people had with about your mom. Well, that got Carmel Quill. She's 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 really headstrong. If she doesn't look like us, and she's t- and she's got her opinion. She's not quiet like the rest of us. Mm-hmm. No, my mom is a ball buster. My mom she, is a ball thank buster. Thank you. That she is was, the word I'm looking for. Your mom took she no was shit. Chinese, yeah. She was Chinese Australian, and she really didn't. You know, her degrees in dance would equal to what would be equivalent to a PhD. So she was not backing down for anyone ever. And my dad was an attorney 
And he came from, he was, he did, he did labor law. So anytime somebody kind of gave her stuff and she came home to, he goes, you tell them, you know, he, he was very Irish about it. He was very, you know, Irish American claw your way to the top. He's a cousin of Mike Quill who started the labor union, uh, you know, the TWA. So, or TWU. So like they were both extremely strong personalities and did they Mm -hmm. fit in where we grew up? No, not really, but they always told the truth. (laughs) Which, by the way, yeah. that's not always welcome. Um, no, and yeah, yes, yes. Go, Rory, go. No, I will just say that years have taught me nobody works harder, nobody's more disciplined than a dancer. I mean, they are. You do not mess with them. Their time is precious. They're, I mean, they're so invested in their body, their instrument, everything they have to do. I mean, you just never, you never get a harder worker than a dancer in my book. Oh, Never. my mother was relentless. I used to yeah. shake when I was little because I'd see how hard she worked on whatever, you mm-hmm. know, whether it was like a committee she was chairing or something, some charity that she, she must've been the chairperson for every charity on Long Island. And I would be like, is that what you're supposed to do as an adult? Oh my God, I don't think I can handle that. Because it was so like, I have 15 copies of this and this has to go to this one. And this has to go to this one. I mean, she was relentless. And I, I do feel like in Amma, there's so much rage and it's rage that can't go anywhere because it was societal and that society, even that she's raging against is gone. Yeah. The only person there to take it out of is a child. Yeah. Right. One of the things I really appreciate about this movie is that there are all these cultural fears, like Aaron was talking about earlier, the thousands of years of oppression of women in Korea the legacy of silent suffering left behind by the the comfort women. But the universal fears that are there, they're not huge. They're not end of the world. They're not apocalyptic. They're not, it's not a demon rising that's going to take over the whole universe. It's not something that's going to kill you and everybody you know. It's the fears are very small, but very personal and still devastating. And something else that Aaron touched on earlier, something that we haven't discussed at all, is this universal fear of the day when your child is going to leave you. Granted, I'm not a parent, so I, 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 I'm only assuming it's universal, but I can't imagine it wouldn't be because it's inevitable. And the internal critic in my head just said, well, maybe fear is too strong a word, but even if it's not fear, I f- would assume there has to be some sort of built-in dread about the day that the baby bird wants to leave the nest. And there's the scene where Sandra Oh and Chrissy have out in the field. There's an application for college that Chrissy has that causes all his dismay that she hasn't know who gave it to her. And, and, you know, it's a physical form that she has to type out on this old non-electric typewriter. And Chrissy one day finds that it's been destroyed. It's been typed over all of it's useless. And she's furious. So she confronts her mother and says, why would you do this? And Sandra oh says, it wasn't me. It was Amma. And they have this whole scene that eventually devolves away from who destroyed the college application to the fact that Christy wants to leave and Sandra doesn't want her to go. I can't wait to leave. Leave? Oh, honey, you're not going anywhere. You can't force me to stay. I don't have to. Sweetie, sweetie. You can't even make friends. You're too scared. I'm the one who had to invite River to game night for you. Why are you acting like this? I'm your mother. I'm the only one who is going to tell you the truth. And the truth is, you can't do it. Fine. 
Leave. Are you forgetting what happened the last time you tried to go to school? The time before that? Or the time before that? Are you forgetting how you would run home crying every day? Mommy, nobody wants to play with me. Mommy, they call me names. Shut up! You begged me to homeschool you, didn't you? You pleaded with me. So what did I do? I homeschooled you. You wanted friends? I was your friend. You wanted a, to build a bee colony? I built you one with my own hands. Everything I have done since the day you were born has been for you. To make you happy. To give you a home, a good home, a safe home. All of this is for you. This conversation so echoed the one I had with my father when I said that not only did I want to go to, do I want to go away to college, but that I wanted to study acting. In fact, it was so reminiscent that I found this scene incredibly hard to watch. You think all of this is for me? Do you mean living like this? Cut off from the rest of the world like total freaks? You're delusional. You're just hiding something. It doesn't really hurt you, does it? The electricity. What? Your sickness. It's not real. Yes, it is. Just because you can't see it's it. It's not. It's just a made-up thing. Some demented imaginary thing in your head. And it's fucking pathetic. <laughs> you said you'd never become your mother. But that's just another lie. Chris, Chris, where are you going? Chris, Chris, don't leave. Chris. It occurred to me on my last watch through that this scene has happened before. This very scene, maybe not the exact dialogue, but in this field, on this farm. This conversation happened before between Ama and Sandra. And then I started thinking, in its own right, in its own way, this conversation has happened in every family. Like every family ever, like since the dawn of time, the dreaded, this dreaded conversation. Regardless of the outcome, regardless of the whether it went well or if it turned violent, the world of everybody involved is changed inexorably after this conversation. And it's one of these conversations that nobody ever wants to have to have, but it's coming it's inevitable. And oh, look, now it's here, tragic and horrifying in its own right. And I just want to add, I mean, like, I've always loved Sandra Oh. I think she's just so unique and so vulnerable in a way that um, I don't I don't think I've ever seen anybody as vulnerable as, as, uh, as her. She really goes there. She gets into trouble. And I love that about all of her performances. But what I really and, and now that I know so much more, thank you about this cultural um, oppression from these comfort women and that whole generational trauma, which thank you for sharing that. I mean, how she, uh, how she lets all of that land in her performance. I just want to add, it's funny. It's like, I'm, I'm Italian American. I'm, I'm Irish and Italian, but on my mother's side, it's all Sicilian American and same similar. I mean, you know, my grandmother, when she was 18, I have, I have the picture. I wrote a, I wrote a whole story about it. She told me this, and I remember when she told me I was very young, and I couldn't believe when she, because nobody had ever, I don't even know if, if she had ever told anybody before this, but when she was 18 years old, she won a contest. She won this dress design contest, and there's this picture of her. She, she wore one of those cone hats that like a princess would wear, and this gorgeous gown, and there's a loving cup. This is like 1930. There's a loving cup on the floor. And I go, what's this? I thought, she goes, hmm. Yeah, I won a I won a contest when I was eight. I won first prize. I I could have gone to Paris and studied in a great design house. Her father 
my great grandfather was a real shit, you know, uh, just, right. you know, beat up my great grandmother, you know, locked in mm-hmm. and, um, you know, she couldn't leave. She was, she had to protect her mother. And there was always this, but I want to say, and I don't know, it's, I, I don't want to say it's just an Italian thing, but I, I've always sensed the walls kind of go up and they have to be tough and the food, I mean, give me a break, <laughs> you know, every, you know, everything's takes days. And food. takes days. But I noticed, I noticed when I, did either of you ever watch My Brilliant Friend, the HBO about the Elena Ferrante, um, the, the friendship? Anyway, it, it's, it's, it's not a horror movie, but it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's, it's tough to watch only because there's so much normalization of violence against women and, and just this, this oppression of women, even the women go, I, you know, I'm fine. Like in this, my brilliant friend, the little girl, she gets thrown out of a window by her father. He breaks her arm. The first thing, I mean, it's really good. It's not just all that, but it's, it's, it's it was on HBO for like a while. Anyway, and she, the first thing she says, she's like, I'm okay, you know? But that like kind of toughness, what I thought was so beautiful about Sandra's performance is that she really couldn't be tough about this. I mean, it was just affecting her so deeply, deeply, deeply that I didn't know about this other stuff it makes more sense now. Cause I was like, I mean, I got it, but I was like, I, I couldn't tell. Like it's, I kept waiting for Dermot Mulroney to buy it. Cause I was like, it's just a horror movie. Like who's, who's going to get like really slashed up or, or the bees are going to just Nobody. Yeah. rip them to shreds. Something. I was waiting for something like that, but it makes more sense now that it's, it wasn't ever meant to be something like that at all. You know? Yeah. I think it's like internal horror, right? The internal horror is yeah, that psychological you become your mother and then you will pass on the trauma that you swore to yourself as a little child crying in a corner that you would not do to somebody else. You, you swore you wouldn't do it to somebody else because you know how it feels. And then you're sitting there and you pass that on. You mm. do it to your child. And that's kind of like, that, that's, I think, that's, I think, a mom thing, regardless of background or ethnicity. I think that that's one of the kind of most haunting things about women in general is that sometimes we find ourselves doing it and we don't mean to do it. Yeah. It's just, we've always said, you know, I'm Gen X and yeah, same. it is so right. Right. We're all Gen X. And like, you know, from drinking out of the hose in the yard to like falling off your bike and walking yourself three miles home. Cause there was nobody to pick you up. You know, like there, there's like just a lot of, trauma in being raised by people who went through wars and then instead of talking about it and dealing with it they were quiet and they didn't say things like you know it i think my husband who's korean his father passed um last year in april and he still is suffering from the trauma because his father went through so much trauma in korea that he basically just decided to not speak English once he retired. And he would just sit in his chair and watch television, Korean television, and just not have conversations. So we both tried over the years, just so many times, like, Appa, how do you feel? And, you know, we would try it and he just could not, he wouldn't engage. I think he was honestly like so mentally beaten up by mm-hmm. what he had experienced as a young man, because when the Japanese army came into Korea, his family was living in North Korea and they were aristocrats and they slit, oh, okay. they slit his father's 
throat in front of him. He was like three years old. Oh my God. So ah. he, right. Ah. So this is what I'm saying wow. about oh. Korea and trauma. There's just an endless amount of trauma that is passed on. And like my mom said to me when we got married, she's like, you know, you have all these pictures of, we have all the pictures of everybody's weddings. Where's the pictures of chills? But, and I said, mommy, they don't have them. And she said, why not? And I said, because the Japanese. And she was like, oh, God. Like, she knew because she was Chinese. She knew what had happened. Um, I have pictures inherited from my grandmother that, like, uh, have killed by killed by the Japanese, like, written in the back on them in pencil. Wow. One of the things that I like, uh, granted, they that's so much stuff to get into, like, like so many layers of trauma that are written in for, for people of Korean background who will see these little signs. There is still a short code that's there in certain points. Like the thing that resonated with me was when we first see the tall. Yes. Um, oh. Which is a mask that is included with the, um, with, with the, the uh, with, 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 with the ashes yeah. in the suitcase that, that, that Amma's delivered it and her most precious, her most prized belongings. What's this? That's a tall. It's a family heirloom. It's been worn by the women in our family for generations. The mask is a grimace. Yeah, awesome. yeah, generations of women have worn this as this silent with no mouth. The mouth doesn't like I was reading a lot of the talls have jointed jaws so they can talk. This one does not. So this is a silent mouth of a silent grimace. So there was a shortcut visually that I said, OK, right. I get that even though they didn't come out and say it specifically, I know from this visual aid that there is built in societal pain among Korean women in the society in general, and also this, these comfort women survivors that I had no idea existed, but I have a visual clue that there's something there. There's some unspoken pain being expressed in that moment. One of the things I also liked about this is that it breaks the rule of Asian horror movies, but also plays right into them. When I was, all right, just today, I said, I'm going to pull up a couple of lists of what people think are the you know 50 best Asian horror movies. And I'm going through the checklist. Every single one of them, the villain is female. Right. Every time it's an avenging spirit, that avenging spirit is female. Oh, yeah, yeah like Crouching right. Tiger. Remember the witch in Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon? Uh, yes. I love that movie. I Every time the villain was a male, it was real life, a real life killer. But whatever it was a spirit, avenging spirit, it was always a woman. I said, right. wow, if I didn't know anything about Asian culture, I'd say, why are you so afraid of your women? This is why. Thousands of years of oppression and subversion. Thousands and of years of oppression, body mutilation, all yeah. that kind of stuff. So the common theory, right, which, of course, people are going to yell about. But, like, it's basically everybody kind of emigrated from China. So China, if it's the starting point, right. And then everybody kind of spread out, you know, you look at, you know, the Chinese and, and like the bound feet, right. And mm -hmm. how they used to break the little girl's feet and they oh. bound them together and they would walk on, on stumps. This is what a bound foot looked like. It looked like your fist with all your fingers curled up and, and then they would just bind them. Um, and they had to carry those women everywhere. Uh, the reason they wanted it was be so that the women wouldn't run away because only the most beautiful of women had their feet bound like that. In all the cultures, whether it's Japan or Korea or Vietnam or um, Laos, they, the clothing for the women is so binding 
whereas the clothing for the men are so free. Yeah. You know, and that's because they were women have been punished in Asia for generations for being attractive, for being the object of desire. And that's translated down into so many tropes in American entertainment that we, you know, get exhausted by constantly getting clocked for this like exotic lotus bloom kind of <laughs> trope, right? That now people, you know, almost Asian American and Pacific Islander women are are overly reactive sometimes mm-hmm. to even the thought of somebody that's an Asian female taking on a negative part that kind of either where the woman is a sex worker or she's a some sort of dragon lady. But here's the thing about that: I this is why I really enjoyed Uma is because Asian American Pacific Islander women should be allowed to be the villain. Right. Yeah. Everybody else should be, you know, just just let them be. Let the actors choose what they want to do. That's what auditioning is. Right. You don't cast yourself. But if you're somebody like Sandra, you can. And, uh, you know, she's she's willing to, like, take one for the team and be like, okay, I'm not going to be glamorous and beautiful and catching spies in Europe today. Today, I'm going to be stuck on a farm somewhere in California. Somewhere in California. Somewhere flat, ugly, and brown. On nameless farm in nameless in nameless United States. And I'm going to be haunted by a Korean ghost. Cool. You know, I'm going to have gray hair. I'm going to look scared and traumatized every other minute. You know, but that's where it's at. I, I do like this movie for that, I think, overall. And I liked how it dealt with generational trauma and all the ways it did. But I do think maybe for a general audience, some of the things would have been missed. Concur- I, clearly it was because the, the ratings for this aren't low because people were expecting something else. Like, Uma is not out to destroy the world. She's not out to hurt, kill anybody. She just wants to get what she's owed. Right. And she doesn't want to be alone. She doesn't want to be alone. So no, you mentioned that nobody dies. I love that nobody dies. I want to talk about River because I love River. First of all, I love Dermot Mulraney's character because he's not the male savior. He's not a love interest. No. And he doesn't come in and save everything at the end. No, he's not there at all. But he has a niece, River, that comes to visit. What I loved about River is because is mm, so many things is that, first of all, she, I clocked her for death. I'm like, that girl's going to die. You're, 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 you're facilitating my daughter. I clocked Dermot. I'm like, he's, he's out. He's, there's something going to get him. Yeah. But her in particular, she, you're, you're teaching my daughter too much about the new, the, the new world. You're, you're, mm-hmm. you're luring her away. You're, you're telling her she's pretty. You're telling her she can have friends. Cause I also expected, Oh, this girl's going to be a bitch because in a horror movie, if you have, if you introduce that character, that girl's going to be a bitch because you have to have girls fight for no reason. But this yeah. character is lovely. She's lovely and she's encouraging and she's warm and she 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 accepts all the weird things about this family. Says, That's actually making you cool, but you need to get out of here. I know you think people think you're weird and I'm not going to lie. You are, but you think being weird is a bad thing. You think you're the only one, but you know what? You're not. There are tons of other weirdos out there. Cool, interesting people like you. You just have to go out into the world and find them. Don't you want to know what it's like? What you're like somewhere else? She's kind of the the BFF that you want at that age. Yeah. Give you a little push. And then also, 
she's used as the tool to be like, hey, your mom's like electricity allergy, kind of bullshitty, right? Because she's like, what are you talking about? I've been holding this phone the whole time. Duh, I'm a teenager. And, you know, yes. Yeah. Sandra didn't burst into flames. You can't blame Chris because it's not like she can look it up on the internet. You know, that could have been clearer. I have to say that whole electricity thing could have been a little bit clearer, you know, because like in the beginning she was throwing out a lamp and then I got convinced she shut that. Was that, and that was when the baby was crying. So was that when she shut off the electricity? She decides then to shut off the electricity after the baby cries and she recalls that. So she had this lamp. I didn't get that the first time through. Okay. Things I don't like about this movie. The darkness is terrible in this, like the dark filter they're using. It's too much. Yeah. The lighting is rough. I get what they're going for because oh, I couldn't see. Like the only time you can see clearly is when there's a candle or when there is lightning. It's just to show how cut off and isolated they were, but it's too much. One of my favorite things lately is finding, like particularly in seventies movies, they knew how to use dark really well. Like it's almost a character. Yes, they did. But this was just so dark. I don't know what I'm looking at. Uh, so yes, that stuff at the beginning, the first time through, like the whole yes. thing with her abuse with that the pre credit stuff. Mm-hmm. I didn't get it all three times. Through, I'm like, oh, now I get it. So the storytelling's a little muddy. I got that right away, but like, I don't know. Maybe I'm just, I, maybe I'm overthinking it, but I did get that, you know, when I saw that in the beginning, I was like, oh, she's going to beat her daughter with a lamp. That's what I thought. I didn't clock the electric right away, but I was like, oh, she's going to beat her daughter with a lamp because I've heard stories of that. You know what I mean? And I was like, oh, we're setting up an abuse storyline for the childhood okay and i hate to watch it mm-hmm. so i'm like oh god don't be so bad oh no it's bad okay fortunately we're spared that we're spared that we never see yeah. any of the abuse so so we just hear about it we get hints of it which i which yeah. i appreciate and i liked with the flashback dialogue that they didn't use a child actor on screen i like that they just used her voice so that she didn't have to be traumatized by you know having to like act that kind of whatever yeah. one of the other things that really resonated with me was something was something else in the box there's there's the there's the there's her ashes there's the tall the mask yeah. and there's the music box people hate the music box why it's sappy it's corny it's sentimental i said that's why it works that's what they okay tell me about the music box tell me somebody tell what what's what's the big deal with the music box that she had a good memory that's the like so she has three bad things in the suitcase right she has the humble which is uh, like a death com book. Um, she has the mask, which of course is terrifying. And she has the ashes, which of course are going to be tossed to the side and come back and haunt them. But then she has this chip m- music box that even through the trauma, she has good memories of. You know, that was, bef- that was probably before the mom was forced to leave Korea. It was probably when she was very little. And then it's clearly old. It's rusted. It's, doesn't look like it works anymore but that was her one good memory and so like with all the other things that are in there there's there's this core and maybe the music box is what she loved most about Emma. right it's something they connected over and i liked that it was something they connected over that was not religious that was not traditional that was just theirs and yes it's corny but that's exactly the kind of thing that you would get from general like this sentimental thing from your mother that like i like mike said my mom just passed i've got my stupid sentimental things some ceramics that she made there, it's a Christmas tree. It's dumb. You know what? It's from my mom. She, we made it together. So yeah, that's a great memory attached to that. I love that. My favorite thing though, and it's something they don't even bring up and they don't even point out, but it just plucked at my heartstrings. There's a scene where Chrissy's just passing by and you see Sandra O oh, sitting at the piano 
with the music box trying to plunk out the melody and you hear how out of tune the piano is. I'm like, that's Amma's piano. That has not been played in 40 years. That is heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. It's just, just trying to bridge that gap. I love that. It's a wonderful little little moment that they don't call attention to. That it's just magical. And it's also another example of being a bad Asian because she should be able to play the piano. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's, our, that's our trope, right? That we, that's, Who just posted a video of that like two days ago? That'd be you, Aaron oh Quill. Oh, you know, my grandmother was a pianist, so we all play the piano. I'll never get it. Never, 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 never. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, I I have to say I I watched it twice. I think I gotta watch it. I definitely have to watch it again now because like I I thought the music box kind of threw me. I thought they kind of like I thought that was is that like eleventh hour? But now that I realize that that piano, see there was so much internal stuff that I I now that I know what you just told me, like I would almost want to go back in and just yeah. I think it. I don't know. Try to get more of that. Uh, fleshed out you know what i mean because it was so so much was dependent yeah so much was dependent on sandra's performance which was amazing as i said you know but um there's a lot of info there that i think um i don't know i i I think uh i think it would do would do to just add more of that for context although i have to say i really love the beginning with all those those uh shots of old korea and the people moving and stuff so it was there i those still images that are popping up during the opening credits. Because I, I wrote it down this time. I realize now it's Amma's journey through life. But it's like it's, it, it starts off with all Korean stuff. He's seeing women in the traditional masks, uh, the traditional dresses, with the masks at the temple, funeral urns. But the music is sinister and strange. You go, oh, look at the look. The, I don't know what's going on. Look at they're doing some sort of ritual. This must this was going to be the scary thing that comes later. But then it shifts into like here's the American farm. The dusty farm and the windmills and the beehives. And I'm going, if I was from the other culture, I'd be like, I'd be looking at the American stuff going, God, that's awful. There's nothing there. There's no people. Where are the people? Where are yeah. the plants? Where's the green? Where's the pageantry? Everything's square and boring. That it's just this war of cultures right from the beginning that depending yeah. on where you're sitting, each side looks strange without a judgment yeah, call from, mean, the film, from the film at all. 90% of, 90% of uh, American culture that deals with Asians from different parts of Asia, that's like the, you know, even like, for example, Good Morning Vietnam, right? He goes from an American army base, all of a sudden he's in Vietnam and it's like, oh, everything's moving, everything, you know, it, it the architecture is different, all that kind of, that, that's, that's like the easiest way to show people that it's, it has this difference, you know, um, the ceremonies and everything, you know, they are not like now there's a big Christian contingent, um, amongst Koreans but like back in the day that wasn't true and that's why they have the older ceremonies you know they're from Buddhism and Taoism and all that kind of stuff and like the honoring your ancestors that's a very I mean heck we see it in Mulan like you know it's (laughs) right so that you know the, the concept that we talk to our ancestors and that we keep their picture and we give them food for their afterlife journey that's a very common concept throughout like all of Asia um, you know, and we see that in so many different things. So like, yeah, that she would not give her mom the rest yeah. of the ceremony. Yeah. That would, that would mess you up as a mother, even if you were a really, really, really bad mother, which clearly Amma was, um, she's, she's still going to need a headstone and some, some oranges and some incense. Yeah. 
I love at the end too, like in a normal horror movie, when it's the final battle between Sandra and Uma, like she would be some CGI nightmare monster and she's not. She's just an old woman sitting in a chair. Yes, that was very moving. That was very, very moving. This is not really a horror movie to make. <laughs> I mean, I know it is, but it is. But it is. But it is. But it is. I mean, it's an emotional horror movie and, and a psychological horror movie. And that that counts. I love that we went for an emotional way to defeat your villain. Actually, I think now that I just heard it out loud, defeat is the wrong word. Diffuse the villain would probably be more accurate. It's Well, I think that maybe it is a very female-centric point of view in that once you understand what your mother went tr- went through, you have to forgive her. She has to forgive you. I didn't know then, but now I know what you went through. I'm sorry I wasn't there for you, but you have to go now. Right. I'm going to give you the respect that you deserve, but you don't belong here anymore. And for both of them to come to that, see, yes, that's that's the way this movie had to end. Yeah. And yeah, and it was through the that that bonding of the the music box. When we uh, when we first hear about it, Sandra remembers the memory that when her mother said, "This was my old music box. Whenever you play it, if you feel sad, you open it and you play it, and it'll make you feel better." When we go back to that, what it's that final battle scene, we see Sandra with the music box, but she's hearing it differently when she's giving it to her mother. It's like, "Hi, mommy. Remember when you gave this to me and you said that when you were sad, you could play the music. Maybe you could play it now and you could be happy again." So there was that moment that they understood each other. Like this, this is one of the, with all the battles at that point, that moment in time, they were on the same plane. Hey, remember this? I get you. Remember this moment? We were okay then. And now, now I'm a grown up now and I know what you went through and I know the pain. I'm sorry. Nobody heard you, but I hear you now. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah, I hear, I'm sorry that everybody yeah, was knew. awful for you. Yeah. yeah she had to reckon with her inner child, you know, and kind of deal with the trauma that was visited upon her, both physical abuse and mental abuse. You know, nobody isolates themselves on a farm if everything was great in their childhood. <laughs> no. And that's showbiz, no. kids. You know? And even before, just leading up into that scene, they had just did a mini version of that with Chris and, and um, Amanda. There's the sequence that begins with, this is when Sandra has gone full Amma. Sandra has left the building. It's totally Amma in her body now. And she's in that basement in the Han box. And she's forcing Chris to join her in giving the ashes of Oma, a Jessup, a burial ceremony. And Chris is resisting because she doesn't understand the ritual because she's never been taught about the ritual. She knows nothing about this culture and she doesn't know this woman. Why are you telling me to respect this woman I don't even know? Get down on your knees and pay your respects. Why? You said you don't believe in this stuff. Do it. No! You stubborn, disrespectful little girl. You remind me so much of your mother. She tried to run away too, away from the home I gave her. Do you know what I had to do when she disobeyed me? I had to lock her in a closet so she could think about all the ways she hurt me. Mommy, you're scaring me. She was scared too, because she couldn't see how much it hurt me. Every time she ran away, I needed her to believe me. She needed to understand my pain was real. We had an old lamp, my favorite lamp, with a broken wire. So I made her hold it 
until my pain became hers and we could feel it together. She never learned her lesson. You can never escape. So we're getting this bastardized version of what a justice should be because there's no actual love behind it. There's no actual respect behind it. It's being forced. The ceremony itself is coming from a place of anger and spite, not love. And Chris is being forced to do it. Like I said, you can't force respect on someone or bully it upon them. It doesn't work that way. Respect has to be earned, which Alma has not with Chris because she doesn't know her. And then and on top of that, the threat of violence, the threat of torture. Chris finds out in the scene that not only did Alma abuse Sandra, she tortured her, which is Horrific. We've talked a lot today about passing on generational violence, but in this scene, Emma as Sandra is literally going to pass on the torture to her own daughter or Emma is through Sandra, not metaphorical generational violence or generational trauma, actual generational trauma. But Chris is able to escape. It gets out into the, the field and there's this final confrontation where Sandra has added a tall to the mix and Chris uses the same strategy that will be used in that final scene at the end. She snaps Sandra O oh out of this trance that she's in by forcing her to remember a shared moment where they were on the same side. Look at me. You say me back to sleep every time we had nightmares. It's true. You taught me how to ride a bike even though you didn't know how. I didn't mean what I said. You are not her, Chris. Chris seizes an opportunity where she got through enough to Sandra that Amma let her guard down and uses it to kick the tall off of Sandra's face, which breaks the spell for now. <laughs> I'm so sorry, Chris. I'm sorry. I almost did to you what she did Listen to me. me. Listen to me. I had no idea what you went through. I wish I knew. You had some shared emotional memory for a second, and that's she goes and deals with her mom. It's like, okay, I, now that I know how to get her out of me, I got to get her out of the picture completely. But you have to think if Uma inherited that mask through her family... You know, then that mask has like maybe a thousand years of trauma behind yeah. it because, you know, yeah. yeah, you would need to crush that mask because otherwise it's not probably just Amma. It's like Amma's Amma and Amma's Amma's Amma. Amma's Amma's Amma. Yeah. 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 It's a whole lot of Amma. <laughs> well, it's, it's like they, they, they enjoy, enjoy that club, right? They go. Yeah. You, you know, I see you and you're my daughter. And then I think back, it's my mother. And we are all steps in time. You know, that's what they say in the trailer club. Like if I have a daughter and you have a daughter and we are all steps in time. And I think that that's a very kind of Asian centric concept that, you know, you know, in America, we're lucky if we know like the two generations back because they left. Right. But in Asia and different parts of the world, we know 
quite far back at least until mm-hmm. like war came to the area we were and then we have to leave so you know but i did think that tall was really i was like oh when i saw that i was like oh here we go I'm like, oh my God, I'm just going to put on the mask and everything's going to go bad. Everything's going to go so bad. Yeah. Yeah. No, I did appreciate that. I appreciated the, um, the, the, you know, the, the, whatever you call them, the flashes of them and the, in the robe and the mask. And then you see her in the window, you know, I mean, that, whatever, that always works. Like uh, Amityville Horror, like the pig in the window. <laughs> like that's just, that's just, it's, it's, you can't lose. You can't lose with some scary crap in a window. <laughs> from i mean and i hate a silhouette it. I hate in a window it. will do it right okay okay sidebar one of my favorite memories is rory kelch doing the imitation of the puking nun from the anime amityville harm no no wait a minute that's the exorcist right no, the exorcist right no it was the amityville Horror, the puking nun i rewatched it like the next i was just like we watched the amityville Horror. my favorite part was the puking nun blam oh i thought that was i thought you know, well, this would be this would be me. There's puking this would be in the me exorcist. That I would totally <laughs> because I have never watched The Exorcist in full because I can't. And I always understandable. Thought, I always thought that puked was in The Exorcist because that would be when I'd stop watching it. I go, okay, or the dog. There was a there was a there was a oh, German right. shepherd the in the this. distance, and I go, I'm out. I'm out. That's that's the <laughs> omen. That's <laughs> just they're just all messed together. That's Damien. That's Damien. <laughs> But you know what? That's fine. I could watch The Omen. I remember because I loved Lee Remick. I could watch that. But I couldn't watch The Exorcist. And I remember I'd be like, <laughs> it's coming. It's coming. I'm out. <laughs> you know? And- <laughs> I remember. So this, you'll appreciate this. So okay. uh, Patrick being a late baby, right? I have another friend. I won't mention his name, but he is also a late baby. And so his brother was a teenager um, when link? one of these, when when one of these like big horror movies, oh, when the Omen came out, he was like three oh, or four. Sorry, sorry, hold on, hold on. Roy, uh, Roy, late baby means like I, my mom had me late. Oh, like she was forty when she had me. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. All yeah, right. yeah, mm-hmm. a late mm-hmm. life baby, right? Or an oops so, and Catholic. Yeah, <laughs> or like I thought we were didn't think with, I could oh, do that no. anymore. Please continue. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So, um, his brother was like. 10, 12 years older than him and took him as like a five or six year old to see the omen. Mm. Right. Yeah. And my poor little friend, who's now a grown ass adult, um, had to go into therapy immediately because he saw the omen at too young an age. And I, and like, if that doesn't sum up like Gen X in one, you know, one experience, what does? And this, yeah, that story reminded me of something. My mom and her best friend, Bernie McGarlough. <laughs> oh, the story's about Bernie McGarlough, but we're not going to, we're not going to, we're not. She's one of the old friends from Floral Park. She's from the American League. She's oh, not one of your fancy oh. Garden City friends. Bernie McGarlough and her snuck off to the movies. They, they said they were going to church. They didn't go to church. They went to see Rosemary, Mary's baby while she was pregnant with me. This explains me. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know my, but do you know my uncle is, is a producer on Rosemary's baby? Name drop Aaron Crowley. Oh, yeah. no, he's dead. He's dead. It doesn't. It doesn't mean you know. Like no, that's he, fabulous. It's fabulous. He he died when I was in high school, but he was um he was what they call like a I forget what the term is uh like a rescue producer like it was if the budget if it was in danger of not finishing filming they uh, would send him in and he would like whip everybody into shape and finish it and Rosemary's Baby is one of the ones that he 
specifically worked on, but he did like wow. across 110th Street and uh, this mini series Chiefs that he won an Emmy for, like all these kind of yeah, yeah. But he just he saying that story out loud made me realize that my mother and her friend had to lie to their husbands oh, about wow. going to a movie. Bad Catholics, yeah. And I remember she told that story to me when I was at, when I was a teenager, and she told it in a whisper. And to, don't tell anybody because, like, what it's thir- 20 years later and you're going to get in trouble for it. Yes, she would have. Oh she would have. Your dad would have been like, I can't believe. Yeah. Jesus I mean, Christ, Lil. <laughs> Jesus, Lil. You have to go off. Christ. And he's supposed to be at the church. Of course, my da- why wasn't my dad at the church? He wasn't expected to go to church because he's the golfing. dad. You know, whatever. Yeah. Yeah, golfing. My exactly. dad was the one that wanted to go to church. My mother was very, like, against organized religion. Mm-hmm. So she'd be like, go ahead. That was the deal I made that the kids would be raised Catholic. If I saw, if I heard one more time, like I agreed to it when we first got married, (laughs) you know, she's like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Life is about compromise. (laughs) (laughs) You marry an Irish guy. It's there's a lot of compromise. Oh my God. Wow. There's a lot of compromise. Yeah. The men. We've done it a roundabout way, but I think we've done Emma because oh like, the story is simple, yeah. but we've talked about it so much. I think we've, I think we've covered everything I want to talk about in different ways I wanted to talk about. And that's exactly why I had you on because you're not my usual guests and you're oh. going to approach the movie in different ways. I loved all this. Um, just since another story, since I think you both appreciate this. A few years ago, I was walking through Times Square uh-huh. on a Friday night with ew, ew, cause ew, but it's really crowded. There's a, there's an Irish bar there. They have a live band and they had the speakers blasting out into the streets. They're playing the wild Rover. <gasps> oh yeah. Mm-hmm. And it got to the part where it's no, nay, nay never. I never. Say, exactly. 20% of the people on the street, like in my view, all did that. The other 80% were like, what happened? What happened? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yep. It was just this, this group, this group Pavlovian response. <laughs> it was fabulous. You know, you can't like you can't fight it. It's a catchy no. tune, you know. No. It's catchy. It's catchy. God love the Irish. Even even people who yeah, even if people don't like know any other Irish song, they know that, and then they know Danny Boy. <sighs> right, 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 right. I, I used to tour with Patty Noonan, so I was his Irish singer, and um. <laughs> And then he'd bring in the big dogs from Ireland and stuff. And uh, he'd always introduce me. He goes, oh, no, here's a lovely little Irish girl from Long Island. And then I'd come out and I'd be like, surprise. <laughs> but uh, it's great. But No Nay Never would be one of the ones I would sing. Mm-hmm. You know? I had a girl. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Okay. So before we wrap things up, where can people find out more about you? Or do you have anything you would like to promote? Anything going on that's exciting? Okay. Well, I just um, actually, I, I, co-host and co-produce this little storytelling um uh venture with a good friend of mine her name is kathleen mckitty harris she's a wonderful writer um essayist and her works appeared in the new york times and all kinds of stuff but we do this thing up here in ridgewood in our hometown called what's your story and it's it's a little bit like a moth but there's no competition we just sort of uh, get writers you don't necessarily have to be a writer you could be a performer you could be someone who just really has a great story to tell you get up in front of people and you know, we get audiences together, but we're doing a fundraiser for the Ridgewood Historical Society uh, the end of this month. So that's 
that's a lot of fun. We're trying to get more exposure for our little storytelling event here. And, you know, I'm, I'm just, I'm dumping, I'm jumping back into, I'm dumping, I'm jumping back into the showbiz pool after like a 13 year hiatus, but you know, it's fun. I miss the hustle like crazy. I mean, and I can't hustle like I used to, even though I didn't know how to hustle back then. <laughs> but because I've got like, you know, I've got a senior and a freshman and <sighs> life's crazy, but it's just, it's. Can I hustle tomorrow? Yeah, I know. Oh. <laughs> it's, good to, it's good to be busy. It's good to be moving forward after some crazy, crazy times. I'm sure you agree, even though we're still, it's still crazy. It'll always be crazy, but you know. And I wanted to ask what's a big one of that one of your credits that I found that sounded interesting to me. The, the anthology you're included in, the I Am Strength. Yes. It was I Am Strength colon something amazing. And I can't remember what, what was after the colon, but it was something great. It yes. was a great title. I have an essay. In fact, I'm so glad you brought that up. I didn't know we were going to talk about this, but that that story I just told you about my grandmother winning that dress design contest. This is a, That's a story I had published in this anthology. It came out in, I want to say, is it 2018 or 19? I have to look. It's called I Am Strength colon True Stories About Everyday Superwomen. And it was published by uh, Blind Faith Books. And marvelous stories. There's one by Martha Frankel. Um, there's uh, there's a lot of different writers and there's poems and stuff. So it's a really really great book. Yeah. So that was a that was a, that was the fun thing that happened. And you know, so yeah, just writing, acting, storytelling, mom and mom in it, cross the mom river, it. cross the river in Jersey. <laughs> I've been here 14 years. I can't believe it. Oh, yeah. uh. Creeps up on you, man. Because you live in Parsippany, Parsippany, New Jersey. <laughs> you live in Parsippany. Oh, wait, we got to be careful. We're <laughs> we'll talk about that after we stop recording. That was That's a side. That, right. that, that was a tangent. We don't need to go down right no, now. No, we don't. Uh, Eric Quill, what's going on with you? What's, where can people find out more about you? I am going to be on Law & Order SVU relatively soon because I just shot it two nice. weeks ago. Wow. Um, nice. I have a film that I was just cast in. It's sort of like a renaissance film uh, that's coming up and it's shooting in the next two months. It's, I think it's like about a Ren fair. I haven't read the whole script, I'll be honest. And uh, But I'm shooting that. Huzzah! Uh, huzzah! Exactly. I actually did a renaissance fair, a Ren fair musical that Nell Benjamin and Larry O'Keefe did um, in December that was all about like the huzzah! Like just from nowhere. And it was so brilliant and funny. I really hope that it, it continues into like a bigger project because it was so delightful. Uh, I have the book Rise, a uh, history of Asian Americans from the 90s to now, where I have a section that I wrote on uh, the musical Miss Saigon. And then there's a book called Theatrical Blogging, the Emergence of a Critical Culture. And I have a one of my blog posts that went viral and helped almost shut down the well chakra. Um, that, that's oh. in there. Um and, uh, Almost doesn't work. count. Shut it down. <laughs> I know, I know. Well, you know, and I feel slightly guilty because I am Welsh. But um, you know, if it's if it's wrong, it's wrong. F. Niles, you should be following Erin on Instagram. She's got a very, very active Instagram. Her videos are great. You're- I have an oh, Instagram, I and, I, and I stayed on. I stayed on Twitter because I'm never the person to leave when somebody's like, "You all should really leave." I'm like, that's when I dig my heels, and I'm like, absolutely not. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. Elon Musk. So, um, yeah. So my liberal ass voice is still on Twitter. So it's at Equil. And uh, that's it. Really. I just, that's it. 
Okay, great. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for coming to talk about this crazy little movie. Thank you for celebrating Women in Horror Month with me. And thank you for being fabulous. So, um, yeah, till we meet again, stay safe, stay healthy, stay fabulous. Thank you. I love you. All right. That was fabulous. Thank you once again to my guests, Aaron Quill and Rory Kelch. That was unexpected and educational and cool in the best way possible, and I loved every second of it. Uh, some updates, though. Uh, it's been some time since I recorded that session, and the episode of Law & Order SVUs with Aaron Quill will have aired the night before this episode comes out. So it's the episode that airs on February 23rd, 2023, if you want to see Aaron doing her stuff on the camera. And I've also provided a link down there in the show notes for the anthology that Rory's essay is included in. I am strength tales of everyday superwomen. So check them out and use all those links down there in the show notes to follow them and all the social media because they are both fabulous women. If you'd like to learn more about that Korean cultural syndrome that Aaron was talking about, the syndrome called Hwabyong, or if you'd like to learn more about the comfort women of Korea, I've put some links down there in the show notes as well, because the more you know, I had never heard about any of this before today. And I think there's been enough silence on this matter. I think there's been enough silence on this matter. And the stories of these women, the stories of these women need to be heard. All right. My final thoughts on Amma. On doing research on the movie, I came across a lot of interviews with Iris Shim. And she talked about working with Sam Raimi. Now, one of the things I heard people bitching about, as I mentioned before, people were like, oh, Sam Raimi, oh, it's just a production company. He just rubber stamped this thing. He had nothing to do with it. But apparently that's not the case. I said he was very hands-on in the production process and had a lot of tips on how things should go. And the thing that he kept saying over and over again, she had written in some elaborate traditional horror movie scare scenes. And he said, Iris, for this story, it's really important that you don't let the horror overshadow the emotion and the relationships. And that's exactly what she did. So everyone who said this isn't a horror movie, yeah, it is. Because Sam Raimi, one of the masters of horror, knew that this was the way that the story should be told. And one of the things I find interesting that when I compare Uma to Sissy, the movie I covered earlier this month, is how much was going on beneath the surface. Like, like a lot of times you get, you know, visual storytelling and hidden themes to movies, but both of these movies had so much going on that, that what was on the surface that I can't help but tip my tiara to. I mean, I had to spend two episodes talking about Sissy. Had I kept in the plot descriptions, we could have talked for another hour about Ama. But anyway, I'm finding that the more and more women the more and more women are getting the opportunity to direct and write horror films. Little by little, they're expanding the definition of what horror means. That it doesn't have to be a big hulking psychopath chasing you through the woods. That sometimes it could just be dealing with the death of a parent. Or when your baby bird finally leaves the nest. Yes, they're everyday things, but there is horror lurking in there. And I think that's a rich mind. And I, for one, am here for it. Now, I know you're probably thinking, Patrick, what are we going to talk about next time now that Women in Horror Month is over? Well, don't worry, because we're taking another voyage into the unexpected. Because the movie that we're talking about is A Wounded Fawn, which is available on Shudder right now. On the surface, it looks like your standard woman trapped in a cabin in the woods with a psychopath kind of a movie. But then it takes this hard left turn into Greek and Roman mythology. And... Who better to have on as guest is our resident expert on Greek and Roman mythology, Matt Knight, and his husband, Cubby Hall. 
So that's on Shudder. Check it out. It's going to be super fabulous. All right. I think that's going to wrap things up for another episode of Scream Queens. If you've had a good time here, please hit subscribe or follow on your podcast listening device. You'll always find out when there's a fresh steaming episode waiting for you to listen to. And if you would like to get in touch with me, by all means, follow me on social media. I'm on Facebook at Scream Queens where horror gets gay. And I'm on Instagram at Scream Queens Podcast. And of course, that's Queens with a Z. And if you're sitting there thinking, Patrick, you talk too fast. There were so many links. How can I possibly keep up? Don't worry, little pickle. All those links are down there in the show notes. So just scroll down and click away, baby. Click away. So until next time, my beautiful, beautiful screamers, continue to make the world a more fabulously creepy place. And you do that by following the Scream Queen's golden rules. Are you ready, campers? Say it with me. Fight or flight. Survive the night. Make it to the final reel. Stay safe, stay healthy, and most of all, stay fabulous. Bye. All of the music for tonight's show, unless otherwise specified, has been written by Sam Haynes. You can find all of his music at www.bandcamp.com. Bitches! <laughs> Ew.